Mackenzie is a person who knows a lot of things. So listen up. <laughs> <laughs> dedicated to engaging the world of the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm Shannon. And I'm Stephen. Here we reflect on our experiences as siblings growing up in Narnia and journey deeper into its world with the eyes of young adults. Today, we're talking with our friend Mackenzie Amit about C.S. Lewis in the fantasy genre. Mackenzie brings her experiences studying English literature to bear on her understanding of C.S. Lewis as a literary author. Some of the topics we briefly touch upon in the beginning of our conversation may not be suitable for young audiences, so listener discretion is advised. Without further ado, please join us for our interview. So today we are talking to Mackenzie Amit. Mackenzie is a family friend of ours. Uh, like us, she has grown up with the Chronicles of Narnia and she is now a young adult. She is the same age as I am. Mm -hmm. So we want to talk to her today about her experience with Narnia and some other insights she has into the literary world of Narnia. So hello, Mackenzie. Welcome. Hello. It's, I'm so excited to be here. Like I, I love talking about this stuff. Um, <laughs> It's so good to have you on the program. Before we get uh, started too much in your background, could, we, could you give us a brief snapshot of who you are and what you're doing now? You're, uh, you're in the UK right now, correct? Yeah, so um, when I was 18, I moved to Edinburgh to study um, English literature at the, Edinburgh, at the University of Edinburgh. Um, when I graduated, um, I spent, well, I spent last year doing a master's degree by research in Renaissance literature. And I am hopefully going to be staying in the UK for the next few years doing my PhD in the same. That's exciting. Very cool. Well, this is such an honor to have you on the podcast with us today. Uh, someone who I'm sure knows uh, so much about this field, which was kind of the world that Lewis himself lived and, and moved in and is referencing. So we were really excited to hear your insights. First of all, we'd just love to hear your own story, though, growing up with the Chronicles of Narnia, what was your uh, experience like growing up with the books? Yeah, um, so I think like most little Christian girls who are kind of quiet and liked books, Narnia entered the picture when I was very young. Um, I ended up listening, well, actually listened to the audiobooks before I read any of them, kind of before mm. I could read. Um, and so that was really my main introduction to the series. I was really quite young when this happened. I was maybe five, I think, when, when I first started getting into it. Mm. And so if I'm very honest, most of my memories are, are quite hazy. So I, <laughs> I actually never finished the series all the way through. I, little yeah. embarrassed to say this, I still <laughs> haven't read The Last Battle. Really? Um, oh, yeah. Would um, you have plans to read The Last Battle? Um, I mean, I feel like I probably should at, at some point. Um, but if, if I'm terribly honest, I don't really feel a pressing need to. I think it's still a good one and worth reading, but 
obviously <laughs> up to your choice and up to our listeners as to what they choose. So we could unpack this more through our conversation today, but what were some of your initial impressions when you read the Chronicles of Narnia when you were older? Well, this may not be the best place to express this, but I don't think I like them very much, uh, <laughs> if I'm honest. Hey. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Do tell. The issue that I have that really runs throughout the entire series is what well, has to do with C.S. Lewis's narrative style. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a trap that quite a lot of children's literature falls into, where the story is told from an outside perspective, where the outsider is coded as an adult. And so it's Mm. kind of when you receive insight into the minds of a child, it becomes an adult, well, it frequently becomes an adult passing judgment on a child, which I think when you read it as an adult, you're, you're kind of conscious of the fact that the character being described is a child, but as a child, you're not. I think a good example of this is, Shannon, you mentioned um, in, in the first episode you guys recorded about how reading the line, the witch in the wardrobe as an adult, you had a lot more sympathy for Edmund. Whereas yeah. when you were a child, you were just like, no, he's bad. Yeah. Um, and that's because the, the narrator was using the narrative in such a way as to make you think that. And I just find that a really nasty thing in a way for a children's book. Um, because then for the children who, who do behave like Edmund and, and who do get snappy when they're tired but are pretending not to be or who are, who are feeling frightened and so behave in ways that they wouldn't otherwise, it, it comes across as just really quite shaming in a way that I find really unpleasant in children's books. Mm. That's a fascinating Um, insight. I never would have thought of that. Is there a way that the books would be written that you would like them more or that would fix that? Um, I mean, I think that generally speaking, the best children's literature is is children's literature that's focalized through the perceptions of children. Yeah. Um, So it's kind of this uh, focalization, kind of literary thing, Focalization is a little bit different from narration, where it's kind of you can have an objective third-party narrator, but for the most part, you're getting insight into the mind of and through the experience of one particular character. And so then we would say there's an external third-person narrator, but it's being focalized through this particular character. And so as opposed to an external objective narrator, which is what happens in the Chronicles of Narnia, where it's just there's this adult narrator telling you the story telling you how you're meant to think and respond to certain children. Whereas when it's focalized through a child, it becomes a very childlike perspective in a way, which removes that aspect of kind of adult judgment from the equation, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. That's really interesting to think about. I wouldn't have thought of that. Thank you for sharing that perspective. And you know what, this is, I I think this is a good place to talk about that sort of thing. Because one of the things, one of our goals in this podcast has been not to approach it with rose-colored glasses, but to actually have that critical lens and evaluate what we want to keep and what we want to approach with a more critical stance. So yeah, no, that's a really good, um, that's a really good point in evaluation there. absolutely. And just for example, if, if the story had been told from Edmund's perspective, and so we have that insight kind of into him and into his mind and into to what he's thinking and feeling as, as he does the things he does, rather than the narrator just being like, and he was being spiteful. 
mm. it, it becomes a very different sort of narration. Yeah, that would be a very different, very different kind of story. Yeah. Hmm. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's great to have you share your thoughts on that. Moving on to our, our next question. We um, are, are curious, especially given your perspective as a literary scholar, we would love to know how does that perspective inform your reading and your understanding of Lewis? Any, anything you want to unpack here would be great, but I know that previously in some conversations you've mentioned uh, parallels between The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen. Do you want to start with unpacking that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that would be great. I mean, first off, in a way, it's not really a parallel so much as it is just a kind of really just a, a repackaging of the snow queen in, in a slightly different coat um which is totally fine retellings of store of fairy tales happen all the time i think they play a really important part in children's literature in large part because i think fairy tales have those really universal grains of truth about really childhood experiences and so being able to dress them up in slightly more modern clothing makes those experiences even more universal in a way, um, which is one of the really fabulous things that children's literature exists to do. Um, but yes, as I said, um, The White Witch is essentially just the Snow Queen. Honestly, it's one of my absolute favorite fairy tales. If, if anyone's unfamiliar with it, I would absolutely recommend reading it. It's, it's really short. It's really beautiful. Yeah, it's, I mean, Anderson's just absolutely fabulous. Can you unpack for those of us who are unfamiliar just a brief sketch of what the Snow Queen story is about? Yeah, um, well, so it's kind of, it's a story told in, in two layers in a way. And there's a, a frame narrative where the, where Satan essentially commissions a, a mirror that makes people only ever see the worst parts of themselves. But as the mirror is in transport, it gets dropped by the demons and shatters. And, and little shards of it go everywhere. Not to kind of simplify it down to its parts, but essentially the little shards go into different people's eyes and kind of burrow into their hearts. And it, it essentially becomes a metaphor for depression, um, mm. which is really interesting, um, especially to think that kind of this Victorian fairy tale is, is, is tackling the subject. And so that's, that's really the first level of the story. And then on the second, more narrative-based, it's, it's a story about these two children. There's a boy and a girl named um, Kai and Gerda. And Kai, the little boy, um, gets one of these shards of glass in his eye and becomes increasingly distant. I mean, reading it now, we can say, okay, he's clearly depressed. And then the Snow Queen comes along and basically carries him off to the north. It's, it's essentially a warning about pedophilia. It's mm. a kind of boy version of Little Red Riding Hood, where the Snow Queen is a pedophile who's preying on this mentally ill child. And then, and then Gerda, the little girl, basically goes on this mythical quest to save him from the Snow Queen and, and, and melt this shard of glass in him. Wow. Um, so really, really lovely story. I've always found it just heart-wrenching in a way that is so, so impressive for a piece of short as it is. Lewis is quite clearly making use of a lot of the elements of it. Um, Edmund gets cast as Kai, um, and the, the White Witch is the Snow Queen. This, I mean, essentially really this pedophile coming in and grooming and taking advantage of this child who she finds in the woods. Wow, yeah. it sounds like it's a dark story, but one that yeah. maybe for that reason has a lot of, of depth and power to it. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely not a, a light topic, um, but I think it's one that's really, really important. And I think it's one that e even now too few people are willing to really actually deal with in a way. I, I'm sorry, the, so the topic of depression that... Um, that um, depression and that and um, pedophilia against boys, mm -hmm. I think. 
Mm. That's it's everyone knows Little Red Riding Hood. Um, everyone knows what that's about, but very few people are willing to talk about the extent to which boys are abused. Sorry to drag the conversation so far down. No, that's all right. Um, and in that sense, I think I find myself getting frustrated with Lewis's treatment of the story mm. because I think he he makes this connection very clearly and very explicitly. But I think in order to have his kind of sinner redeemed narrative that he has in place for Edmund, he um, really downplays a lot of the elements of Edmund's victimhood within that dynamic. Um, and so it very much becomes Edmund did this bad thing. And so he doesn't get the present and, and he has to kind of suffer extra for having been the traitor. And and in that way, I'm I'm quite if I'm honest, really disappointed by Lewis's treatment of the story. It sounds as though really the fundamental message of the story is different. What's what's the underlying kind of thematic thrust of the of the story is of a different kind. It's a yeah. message, in in the line The Witch in the Wardrobe, it's one of a sinner being forgiven and coming coming to repentance. Whereas uh, in the Snow Queen it's one of uh, a victim being rescued, essentially. Right, yeah, and being rescued. Yeah, that's interesting. How else does your perspective as a literary scholar and your acquaintance with medieval and Renaissance literature inform your reading of Lewis and especially the Chronicles of Narnia? I mean, Lewis was a medieval and a Renaissance scholar. And so really a lot of the things that he's drawing on are medieval and Renaissance things, much like Tolkien did. I think when we talk about the development of fantasy as a genre, there really is just kind of before Tolkien and after Tolkien. Mm. And quite a lot of the things written after Tolkien borrow from Tolkien. And so are in, in that way, they're kind of derived from that branch. Whereas Tolkien and Lewis are really both going back to these much older sources in a way that gives them both a much richer, fuller literary tradition to, to draw from. <laughs> I often get a little bit annoyed at myself, if, if I'm very honest, um, just because I'll kind of notice really little stupid inconsequential things, and then I'll feel so clever for being like, oh, well, this is a reference to this first century poem that became very, very popular in the 1400s that Lewis was clearly familiar with. <laughs> <laughs> those Easter eggs, though, are fun, yes, aren't yeah. they? <laughs> yeah. Those? Um, yes, so... Um, when I was, I was, I've been reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe kind of very, very slowly, kind of just really combing through details. Um, I think I realized that Mr. Tumnus is a reference to a poem written by St. Jerome mm. called um, The Life of St. Paulus, the First Hermit, which is kind of the, the main character who's telling the epic poem about, about meeting with St. Paulus, um, is traveling through the desert, and first he meets a centaur, um, he's not sure if it's a sign from God or if it's a demon. And then he keeps going on and he meets a, a satyr. And the, the satyr basically like gives him food and, and gives him direction and sends him on his way. And, and the role of the satyr within this narrative is really to symbolize um, kind of the old Roman gods and kind of this mythological pantheon is on its way out and they're being replaced by Jesus as kind of this mythological creature is turning from his role as a minor deity into basically a servant of Jesus, sending this Christian traveler on his way. And that's very much a similar role that Mr. Tumnus is meant to play within the narrative. Oh, that's interesting. He's, it sounds as though Lewis, from what I've read of him, is very, uh, is very keen on that trajectory and uncovering 
that sort of relationship between paganism and Christianity. He doesn't want yes. to dispense with it altogether. He's really enchanted by Greco-Roman paganism, and you can see this in his novel, Till We Have Faces, especially. Mm, yeah. um, it, it seems as though he really loves to see the ways in which that's ultimately um, pointing to and leading to the, the full revelation of God that's coming in Christ. And he, and he sprinkles that everywhere. And actually, even recently, we talked about, about the appearance of Bacchus in Prince Caspian. Yeah. What Bacchus embodies, the revelry, the freedom um, yeah. that he embodies is something that ultimately finds its true home under the reign of Christ and in the safety and goodness that that brings. Yeah, which is so interesting because I think through kind of most of early Christian history, um, Bacchus and Jesus were really closely associated associated with each other. But yeah, so within mythology, Bacchus was very much a kind of regenerative figure where mm -hmm. he essentially symbolically died and then came back to life with the harvest, uh, or came back to life with the spring. That's so that's the kind of thing that Lewis was really into. That's intriguing. It doesn't just surprise me at all that it comes up with Mr. Tumnus too. One of the things that we've been talking about, um, particularly on our episode, Planet Narnia, which mm. listeners can, can listen to that if they want to. Lewis, throughout the Chronicles of, of Narnia, as, as far as we can tell, according to the Oxford scholar Michael Ward, is, um, is intentionally referencing various motifs, various themes and other symbols that are associated with each of the seven planets of the medieval worldview and with the pagan gods associated with them in order to show basically how each of those points to Aslan or life under Aslan in some way or other. Um, Jupiter pointing to his, uh, his kingship, uh, Mars to the, the struggle and conflict and war that comes with, with life in the service of Christ, but also the liberation and freedom that that can bring as Bacchus seems to embody himself. So that's, that's an interesting that you would make that connection there. So you, you've mentioned that Tolkien had a very strong influence on the fantasy genre in general. You've mentioned in the past that there are three categories of the fantasy genre. What are those three categories and how did Tolkien and Lewis possibly map into those? Basically, when we look at fantasy as a genre, obviously there are like tons of different subdivisions of subgenres essentially um, but you can really all break them down into three larger categories in terms of the type of story and and the type of world being used to tell the story um, and that's um, intrusive fantasy which is essentially just it's our mundane world and something magical breaks into it and so it kind of intrudes onto the mundane existence and, and makes everything magical usually for a brief self-contained period and then there's portal fantasy which is what most of the narnia books are and that's essentially, there's our world, there's another world. Someone essentially takes a portal through into the other world. In a way, that's quite heavily descended from medieval literature. There's lots of ideas about kind of the different realms of fairies, and they were kind of in our world and kind of not. And like, you could pass between them, but it was really difficult. They made time all funny. And that's really most of the tradition that Lewis is drawing on for the creation of Narnia. And then there, oof, um, sorry, I have had a total blank and forgotten the name of the third kind of fantasy. Like the Lord of the Rings is basically just, there's another magical world and the yeah. entire story yeah. is self-contained within that magical world. Um, is that immersive fantasy by chance? That is it, yes, you oh, nailed right. it. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. The world um, has a logic of its own. It doesn't have really any relationship with our world. Magic is just part of the way things run there, et yeah. cetera, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think in large part because of the influence that Tolkien had in the fantasy genre, that's definitely kind of become the dominant form of fantasy, at least kind of when people think of fantasy, they think of immersive fantasy, that kind of like high fantasy, there's just this other world for the most part. Mm. Whereas portal fantasy is much more common in children's literature mm. um, because it, it, it lends itself to teaching something because you have this character who, like the reader, is thrown into this unknown world. And so there's the opportunity for them to learn as the reader learns. Whereas kind of when you get into like a high fantasy book, it's like there is this whole set of rules and you recognize there's a set of rules and the characters you're reading know them, but you, the reader, don't and have to figure them out. Hmm. Whereas with portal fantasy, the, the character you're following doesn't know the rules. And so kind of as they learn them, you do. Okay, you're seeing so, the world to the eyes of the, of the magical world traveler who's learning these things too. Yeah. Okay. Um, so here's a really random question that has nothing to do with the Chronicles of Narnia. What would Harry Potter be? What category would Harry Potter be? Because that is actually hotly contested. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> whenever we talk about genre in literature, everyone talks as though there are these really hard boundaries, but then there never actually are. <laughs> there's definitely an argument to be made that it's intrusive fantasy. Okay. And there's another argument, well, kind of because Harry's living in this normal life and then the magic, in magic wizarding world essentially intrudes into right. the quote unquote real world. Right. Um, and then kind of almost exists as its own separate thing, but is, is closely connected and kind of intertwined with our world. There's also, I think, a less strong case to be made that it is just immersive fantasy, and it's basically just another universe in which this just is the reality. Also, a case to be made that it's portal fantasy, um, because Harry represents the kind of human tossed into a magical world who doesn't know, know the rules but has to figure them out. Right, um, right. So, meh. <laughs> it's, I could see how it's kind of more in genre. Fertile fantasy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, genre literature, genre in literature is kind of useful until it isn't. It can be good for making big categories and kind of sorting things together. And then there are other times where it's a bit useless and it is kind of just a case by case basis, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, th thanks for going down that little <laughs> rabbit trail. Yeah. <laughs> um, so some of our listeners may know that. C.S. Lewis was friends with J.R.R. Tolkien. They were in the same literary group together called the Inklings. Can you tell us what their relationship was like and did they have influence over one another's writings? Who were the Inklings, first of all? Yeah, I can never remember exactly who was in it. I know Dorothy Sayers, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien. It was essentially just a group of friends who had similar interests in terms of literature, who were all writers, who were all kind of academics essentially um and, and they basically just got together and talked about books which <laughs> sounds like a really good time yeah oh, um yes. but yeah so c.s lewis and tolkien were really good friends when lewis was an atheist tolkien spent years trying to convert him back mm. tolkien was a catholic so i think he kind of lost out in the end no let me rephrase that tolkien did not lose out in the end i think he was sad c.s lewis didn't reconvert back to catholicism mm. But oh, yes, um, yeah, but yeah, so they were very, very good friends. They were colleagues for a while. 
<laughs> in terms of influence, it was it was kind of a one way street. Lewis borrowed. I mean, everyone who writes fantasy today owes what they do to Tolkien in a very, very big way. Mm. Um, the Chronicles of Narnia would never have happened without The Lord of the Rings. I think that's really clear in Lewis's writing. Um, not necessarily in terms of he's kind of lifting bits directly from Tolkien's writing, but he makes it quite clear the ways in which he was inspired. And quite a few of his characters are based off of Tolkien. So Professor Kirk is, is Tolkien essentially. Awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so you kind of have this character who kind of, if you know, the magician's nephew, of course, really is the one who started it all and, and, and who went to Narnia first and, and came back with this apple that made the wardrobe that made the portal to Narnia. Oh, um, okay. Do you think that yeah. represent the role that Tolkien had in Lewis's own life and bringing him to Christian faith to begin with? I think absolutely. I think Lewis, in a way, very much knew what he owed to Tolkien, both kind of professionally and, and personally. And I think in that sense, the relationship was really, really important to both of them. In terms of, <laughs> I almost feel bad to say this, Tolkien didn't think Lewis was a very good writer. <laughs> um, and was basically just like, it's great that it makes him happy. And in that sense, it's great. But like, <laughs> Did he have any specific complaints? Um, yeah, he, he definitely thought that Lewis was a much better academic. Tolkien, Tolkien thought that I he think he just thought he was kind of pedantic and boring. So <laughs> I don't know how familiar you are with the or you or your readers are with Lord of the Rings. Um, but but Treebeard, the the Ent was was based off of C.S. Lewis, and one of Treebeard's defining characteristics is he tries to tell stories, but they're really long and boring, and so everyone runs away and never comes to the end of them. That's um, <laughs> that's funny. Never connected to you, but yeah, it's uh, a storyteller. Yeah, and they always <laughs> they gather in circles and they tell the old stories together. Oh I, I almost wonder if that that's sounds so like a literary. Yeah, story. that is funny. That is funny. Although you know, um, you know, in in Lewis's yeah. defense. Tolkien liked very little literature that was written after Chaucer, if I'm not mistaken. You can correct me if oh, I'm Oh yeah, absolutely. No, you are not wrong. He only read the medieval literature and that the really old medieval literature too. Yeah. You've mentioned um, a, a couple times in our conversation now how much modern fantasy owes to Tolkien and Lewis. Um, that they kind of sort of form a watershed moment in fantasy. I think it might be easy, it might be difficult on this side of whatever happened in Tolkien and Lewis to see what exactly was that happened there, what the change was. What was fantasy like before Tolkien and Lewis and how did it change? I'm going to say something that sounds really smug and pretentious. Um, I in a way, kind of prefer fantasy, Tolkien and back. Um, I definitely include Tolkien in, in that. Okay. Prior, prior to Tolkien, um, most fantasy was really surreal. It very much capitalized on taking and, and retelling parts of medieval literature, which was in and of itself very surreal and very fantastical and kind of you could be wandering through the woods and then suddenly you're in fairyland and there's a castle made of paper and it's amazing. I mean, your dead wife is there and you take her back with you. There's really a lot of that that's happening in, in the pre-Tolkien fantasy where it's just 
you're going along and suddenly anything goes essentially mm-hmm. um if if your listeners are interested in some of lewis's literary sources i'd really recommend reading lilith by um i've, I've suddenly forgotten his name george um MacDonald. george mcdonald yeah so lilith played a really big part in inspiring lewis to write and and i think that'll give you a sense of the kind of weird surrealism of fantasy prior to Tolkien. But there's a reason that fantasy prior to Tolkien wasn't particularly successful, um, at least not commercially. Um, And then you get The Lord of the Rings. And in talking about his own writing, Tolkien was always very clear that it wasn't an allegory. But there there is very much a part of the narrative that speaks to the experience of going through World War II. And so I think in a very big way, The Lord of the Rings offered both something really globally, emotionally cathartic while telling a really clean, cohesive story that made a lot of sense and was really, really intriguing and carried over a lot of the really fascinating elements about how we tell stories and how we think about storytelling and turned it into this thing that was incredibly emotionally emotionally laden and really, really enjoyable. And it blew up and became massive overnight success, sold. It's, it's actually an interesting story. It was moderately successful in the UK. And then a pirated copy started being sold in the US, where it be- became just massively, massively popular. And then there became this whole thing where there was massive publication battles and it because of kind of the legal copies versus the illegal copies. Um, hmm. And it, it actually played a really big, important role in modern copyright law, but that's besides the point. But yeah, essentially it just was really, really popular. And that was the thing that really made the difference. That's so it to make like- a long story. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's fine. I was just going to ramble on more. No, well, well, we appreciate your ramblings. I think a lot of our, our audience here are, are interested in, in learning more and digging deeper into what is underlying these fanciful worlds. Yeah. And, and our Lewis fans, are many of them are probably Tolkien fans as well. So this is, uh, I'm sure, interesting to a lot of people. It sounds as though there are a few changes that I'm hearing you say that there was a lot of, there was really a, a, a surreal almost lawless nature to the fantasy that preceded Tolkien. And perhaps for that reason, um, it wasn't as commercially popular as Tolkien's came to be. The innovation, if, if I'm hearing you right with Tolkien, was that his immersive fantasy world it created actually a world that had um, a magic with a logic of its own, that maybe even, maybe even his use of magic showed a certain restraint that prior fantasy hadn't shown but the fact that it had its own coherence enabled it to tell stories that resonated deeply with recent experiences in the western world with the world wars and that perhaps that was the source of its success i mean that really is just everything that i just said in a nutshell so good on you it's almost as though the previously fantasy magic itself didn't have rules, whereas Tolkien created a world that had rules that were different from our own, but rules were there. Would you say that's... Yeah, I know that's that's definitely it. Prior to um, the vast majority of fantasy, and there are exceptions, 
I think one of my favorite fantasy novels ever was written in the 20s. It's called um, Blood in the Mist by Hope Merlees. So if anyone's interested, would highly, highly recommend it. It's absolutely fantastic. Hmm. Um, but with the exception of that one, most major early fantasy novels were framed as dreams. And so they really just kind of followed that same dreamlike, illogical pattern. Um, and so by making his own story not a dream, and just a story that he's telling, Tolkien really gave it that grounding in reality um, and those, like you said, those established rules that really made it into a coherent narrative. So to wrap things up today, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that now you kind of have mixed feelings about the Chronicles of Narnia, but when you were growing up or even today, uh, do you, did you have a favorite book in the series? And why was it your favorite? The Horse and His Boy was my favorite. Mm. I think if you'd asked me when I was seven, I would have just said it's because I love horses. <laughs> um, and I loved Brie. Yes. I just, I wanted a talking horse more than anything. <laughs> and I would have done anything to be in that position. Mm. But I think also re-remembering my experience of Narnia. One of the things that makes The Horse and His Boy really unique among the series is that it's not portal fantasy. It's, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure it's the only one where the protagonist doesn't come from, doesn't come through a portal into kind of this mythical world. One of the big reasons I liked it was because it wasn't portal fantasy. Mm. And because with portal fantasy, you always have to leave. Even as a really little kid, I was frustrated with how much Lewis underplayed the tragedy of leaving. After I finished The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I would have dreams where I was an adult and then kind of either within the dream I would be trapped back in the body of a child or I would wake up in the morning, obviously, being a child again. And I found that so upsetting. Yeah. And I think, honestly, I think the thought of kind of being one of the high, the high queen of Narnia and then suddenly being a child and having to go to school and having to yeah. live as an English child in the 1950s was so horrifying yeah and i didn't feel that lewis kind of dealt with just how earth-shatteringly tragic that was was really disappointed by that you never get to see the pevensies after they return except for maybe a brief snapshot where they're talking to the professor about how they left their coats in the wardrobe it would be interesting to see what was their re-entry experience like? Yeah, we, we actually, we've had a few conversations about this covering Prince Caspian because that's the first book, you know, after they've been adults and back as children again. I think I, I like you, I think I wish maybe Lewis kind of unpacked that a little bit more, but it's interesting. They do seem to really lean into that frustration and tension between like having been an adult and then a child again in the Disney World and media Prince Caspian version. Um, yeah, in the book uh, of Prince Caspian, at least you can you can tell, and the narrator comments on this that they are children, but the heir of Narnia is starting to bring back yeah. their old Narnian selves again. Yeah. So even though yeah. now what they have is the body of a child, their adult selves are kind of getting stronger and stronger the more time they spend in Narnia. They're adults in children's bodies. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, yeah. but they have to go through puberty twice. Yeah, like, can you imagine? That's awful. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought of that. Yeah, you know, it, it, I suppose it says yeah. something even about what Lewis must have thought about the nature of the human 
person or of the soul, or even whether or not he really thought about it in order to write that kind of, that kind of fiction inherently assumes that, yeah. uh, that a, a person is maybe an immaterial entity that's not merely constituted of, you know, a body or a brain with neurons and whatnot. There's something yeah. that can be separated and then rejoined to a particular body, yeah. it seems. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what it seems to me is that he's someone with a very particular view of childhood, where childhood was unequivocally good. I think if you look at Lewis's own life, I always hate kind of trying to psychoanalyze dead writers because um, I don't think that's the role of a reader. Um, but kind of if you look at Lewis's own life, his mother died when he was nine. He was shipped off to England. I think he very likely divided his life into my childhood when my mother was alive and everything was good. And then when I became older and my mother was dead and everything was terrible. Mm. And so... To him, the thought of being able to return to childhood wasn't horrific. Yeah. What do I know? That's an interesting that perspective. Is, yeah. It would certainly fit with um, what we see actually in The Last Battle, though I, I, I suppose you haven't read The Last Battle. <laughs> Susan. See, I do know what happens. <laughs> you, know, you know what know what happens to Susan. She, she grows up, she reaches a certain stage of life and wants to stay there, basically attached to the vanities of the world in short, um, whereas maybe her, her childhood had more of an innocence to it. And those uh, who, yeah. who continued on and, and, and basically were able to live in, in the recreated Narnia, perhaps it was because they held on to the innocence and wonder of their childhood. But I think just to go back to my original point, um, because the horse and his boy isn't portal fantasy, he doesn't have to leave. Yeah, and he gets to stay. But, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Um, the Horses Boy is really like just a very, very different book from the rest of the series. Probably mostly because of that. I think that's all we have for today. We really appreciate your taking the time to to delve into these questions and to offer the perspective that that you have had, being so much more acquainted with the with the history and the literature of this world than we are. Uh, it's it's really great that you would uh, devote the time and we appreciate your yeah, perspective. Yeah, absolutely. This has been like utterly fascinating and yeah. fun. Thank you guys so much for having me. I've really had, really had a really good time. Yeah, it's um, been a blast. I don't know if you've been able to tell, but like I just love being able to ramble on for as much time as I want about this stuff. So well, this has been great. You on this podcast. So you are in good <laughs> All right. Well, look forward to future conversations, Mackenzie. Thank you so yes. much for talking to us. Thank you, guys. Definitely looking forward to talk again. Thank you for joining us for our very first interview episode of Beyond the Lamppost. Do you have any thoughts or opinions on Lewis in the fantasy genre? Please let us know and email us at beyondthelamppost at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Beyond the Lamppost, and be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Join us next time as we delve into Prince Caspian, the movie, by Disney and Walden Media. I, for one, am massively excited to get into that. Until next time, fellow Narnians, go forth and have jollification.
theme song is by Jacob Harada. Check out more of his music at jacobharada.com. <laughs>